0: Hey Lit listeners, prepare for an epic journey into the heart of rock history with a living legend behind the lens, Neil Preston. In this exclusive Rock is Lit episode, we step into Neil's unparalleled career spanning nearly five decades, capturing the essence of musical icons like The Who, Bruce Springsteen, Fleetwood Mac, Queen, and more. As Led Zeppelin's only tour photographer in the mid-70s, Neil's lens witnessed the raw energy that defined an era. His lensmanship also extends into cinema, notably collaborating with his best friend for over 50 years, writer and director Cameron Crowe, on several of Cameron's movies. In fact, the duo's real-life adventures inspired the film Almost Famous, which Neil and I are going to talk about. And, of course, Neil will regale us with captivating tales from his 2017 photo book, Exhilarated and Exhausted, fascinating retrospective of his career, with a killer forward by Cameron Crow. In the spirit of Rock is Lit's focus on the convergence of fiction and music, after all, it is the first and only podcast devoted to rock novels. Get ready for a deep dive into Neil's iconic photograph of Jimmy Page at Keysar Stadium in 1973, which is a photo that in many ways informed and plays a major role in my rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. You'll have to check out the novel to find out how. So whether you prefer your poison in a glass or words on a page, join us for episode 42 of Rock is Lit as we unseal the extraordinary legacy of Neil Preston.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Neil Preston, and you are listening to Rock is Lit. I'm not, but Rock is.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Neil, for joining me. I really appreciate it.
1: You're very welcome. <laughs> My pleasure.
0: I have been doing this podcast only about a year, so Rock is mm. Lit is still a baby. Uh, but I've, I've had a chance to talk to some really cool people like Danny Goldberg and Susie Quattro and Jim McCarty from the Yardbirds a couple of times. And I have to tell you, and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, getting you to come on the podcast is, is one of the biggest thrills I've had so far doing the show. Aw.
1: I know I'm a good photographer. I'm not the best in the world. I'm not the worst in the world. Okay? Uh, and I'm the first one to say that my ego as a photographer doing what I do and knowing the people I know is like way down here. It's the pictures that that people gravitate towards. The pictures being so much to so many people that it, in the last 10 years, 7, 8, 9, 10 years, it finally hit me that A, I've created a huge body of work, but B, that body of work is significant. And it's significant to a lesser level for historical value, but on a greater level for, for as far as I'm concerned, for the pleasure it brings the fans. The memories, the nostalgia, someone puts a print of mine up on the wall and they derive pleasure from it. That's how I get my cookies. I mean, because, look, I can walk down the street and nobody knows who I am, except for a tiny little slice of the entertainment world, rock and roll world, or my friends. Uh, you know, I'm completely anonymous, but they'll know the pictures. Yeah. And that's what makes the difference. So well, um,
0: that sounds yeah. like the best of both worlds. Then, now you can walk down the street. You know, but speaking of of having prints on the wall, I was interviewing a student who's going to be a Rock is lit intern next semester, and we were doing a Zoom interview. Mm. And I yeah. love doing those because you can see what people have in their rooms. And behind her was a picture, a copy of the Freddie Mercury shot from Wembley Stadium in 86.
1: Oh, we're just bending back, yeah.
0: Yeah, yes. And I said, uh, I'm getting ready to interview Neil Preston, who took that picture. I thought she was going to lose her shit. She was so excited because she just, she loves Queen. She loves that picture. And she knew several of of your other pictures. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, your work means a lot to a lot of people.
1: Well, it it really does. and and, But I, I, trust me on this, and I'm a straight shooter, okay? I don't need to kiss anyone's butt. I don't need to have smoke blown up my ass or vice versa. And um, I'm as normal as they come. I talk to Jimmy or Robert or the man, the moon, the same way I talk to you or the guy at the 7-Eleven, you know? Um, But I've come to see, especially later, like I say, certainly the last 10 years, People ask me what I do. Oh, I I don't like to lie. I'm a photographer. You know. Well, what do you shoot? Well, I work in the entertainment business. Well, what do you shoot? if I actually tell them, they lose their minds. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I mean, there yeah. was my my mom and dad used to say because my my I come from a Broadway mm-hmm. uh, family. Uh, so my mom and dad called regular people civilians. You know, civilians cannot wrap their heads around what i do what i've done and to me it's i understand why they think that because they see the end result i'm a music fanatic yeah i mean i'm a fan this is what almost famous is about and i know we'll talk about the the movie later but it's about family and it's about fandom and um you know when a fan when a Stevie Nicks fan happens to come up here and comes to an exhibition and sees some of the stuff that they've never seen, they, they genuflect. I never dreamt in a trillion years that I would be known at all and that my work would be considered a significant piece of pop culture history. Yeah. Never. I mean, who thinks that when you're like, Eleven, you know. I always thought I'd work in a camera store after I got my first mm-hmm. camera, about twelve years old or thirteen. I, I, I never dreamt I'd be doing anything like sitting here talking to you, talking about this picture and that picture. And you know, I'm there to do my job. And um, when the lights go down, I'm on it. <laughs>
0: You know, today is the 43rd anniversary of the death of John Lennon. so I I sort of want to start there because I know that seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show in 64 just knocked you on your ass. You write in your book that a nuclear bomb had exploded in my brain, delivered straight to my cortex by John Lennon. So tell me more. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: That's the best explanation I could come up with. I mean... Uh when yeah. I was a kid uh and even when i grew up my my dad was a Broadway stage manager mm-hmm. so uh and my my nuclear family is my mom, my dad, both whom passed away my sister is still alive who's older than me and lives in the u k and me um so when my dad had a he was the uh stage manager for the original Camelot, my fair lady, the king yeah. and I fiddler on the golden age of- yeah of Broadway musicals, So, um, uh, you know, when he'd have a, a, a show in New York, we'd be, we'd be in New York and I went to first, second, third, fourth and fifth grade in New York, sixth grade, we were on the road. And when you, when you're, uh, uh actors equity, which is the union that my dad belonged to, uh, there are very strict rules for, uh, and, and they, they're they under the auspices of the New York State public education system. And they have very strict rules in that uh, children in the cast of a touring show, uh, the children of the crew who are also traveling, must there must be someone in the cast who has a New York State uh, teacher's license, who's licensed to teach in the state of New York. It's usually a chorus boy or a chorus girl, and they make extra yeah. money. Uh, but yeah, when in February '64, that week we we were in Boston. Now, and that was 1964, so I would have been turning later that summer twelve. So I was eleven and three quarters, and uh, you know we always used to watch the Ed Sullivan Show. I didn't know. I had never, I vaguely heard the Beatles a couple of weeks before that, but right. I remember turning it on and my life was never the same. Mm-hmm. It, I, it's, there's no way to describe it other than a nuclear bomb delivered right within my cortex, right to the heart of the matter. Yeah. And um, it was the music, the vibe and the what I considered the supreme coolness of John Lennon.
0: Yeah, I was just going to ask, why John and not Paul, George, and Ringo? But I'm with you on that.
1: John, uh, suffice to say, you'll probably agree with me. The male race that, that got into the Beatles, although we all love the music, we would gravitate towards John, you know, this snarky guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I never met John, but uh, everyone told me he was a prick of pricks. So, yeah, so John Lennon, to me, was the epitome of cool. And, I mean, the music just got me. And, um, you know, and I'd been exposed to all kinds of music when I was a kid, classical, Broadway. Uh, I'm probably the only person you'll ever interview that can name all 11 Gilbert and Sullivan operettas.
0: Oh, my. Mo- most of them. I bet you are And, right.
1: um, and my dad was big into classical music. And so pop music, I was always around showbiz and pop music. But I, I was transfixed by the Beatles that night. And the next morning, we were, we were in Boston, and there was a very famous department store called Filene's, And in the basement, they had cut-rate stuff. And my mom took me there uh, the next morning and bought me Meet the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I have a print, an original print of Robert Freeman's of the Meet the Beatles album Yeah. Well, I don't
0: have a print of that, but I have the album framed on my wall because it was the first album I got, too. I saw a TV, made-for-TV production, Birth of the Beatles, and had the same reaction you did. Just fell in love with the Beatles. It was John that grabbed me. He was my favorite. And I went out and bought the album the next day. I was 10 years old and... Been a Beatles freak yeah. ever since, so I, I dig what you're saying.
1: Yeah, well, for me, there's the Beatles and the Who, and everyone else. There's John and Pete, and everyone else. And I love a lot of bands. Yeah, but in my heart of hearts, my friends know if they if they come through the front door, they're going to be hearing Baba or won't <laughs> get fooled again, or or it's something having to do with the Who most of the time.
0: Yeah, you were blasting the Who when we talked on the phone last month. I oh, could yeah. hear it in the background. I don't remember oh, which yeah. song, but I could hear it. Awesome. Yeah. All of right. them.
2: <laughs> Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the Headphone Pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, So, well,
1: yeah, so, but the Beatles were, were the, um, they, they were the, as Biden would say, the inflection point that changed my life.
0: Well, you mentioned Fiddler on the Roof a little while ago, and I think you took your first onstage photo at Fiddler on the Roof. You knew the play. So you knew when there would be laughter because you're not supposed to take photos. And and at that perfect point,
1: right, you right. took
0: your first photo.
1: I snapped one frame. Um, now my dad being the production stage manager, um, you know, he, every time it's so funny because every time, once I was old enough to get on the subway to go from Queens into Manhattan, I'd usually, um, take the subway in on uh, Saturdays and see the Saturday matinee. And then in between the matinee and the evening show, my dad would take me to the Horn and Hardart Automat, okay. where you put the quarters in and, and you pull the sandwich out. It seems so quaint now. But, um, uh, but uh, I had my first camera, and I remember taking it. And my dad would stand and uh, stage right. And he would have a little booth with a microphone. He'd call the lighting cues and he'd have a script, you know, but he was in the wings. You couldn't see him, but I'd always stand next to him. And, uh, he'd always make sure he told me, uh, you know, actors coming this way with a piece of scenery. So I pretty much knew when to, when I could hang, and when I get out of the way. But, uh, this one time I went to see, the, went to see him on Saturday and, uh, the the uh, the male lead who I think must have been Zero Mostel was sick, so our my mom and dad's friend and my friend, uh, an actor named Harry Gaz, uh, was the understudy. So he took over the lead role that that day, and I just for some reason I thought this is my chance. And he Harry, there was a speech that he would tell while sitting on a rock on stage right. So he was maybe. As the crow flies, five feet away from me, six oh, wow. feet away from you. But I'd be tucked against the, the uh, uh, you know, the curtain so no one in the audience could see me unless I peeked around like that. And I knew when the laughs would come. So in the middle of a big laugh, I snapped one, maybe two frames. I think it was one frame. And kind of, you know, and it took my life in my hands because that's highly, it's not that it's illegal, but my dad told me years later that he could have been socked with a $10,000 photo call bill from the stage hands union. Now they loved my dad. So I don't know if that had anything to do. I don't think anyone heard the camera shutter other than me, but I was nervous as hell, but I got the shot and, um, I had the the process. I still have the original slide here. Really? Yeah. And, um, I had some five by seven prints made, which was what I could afford at the time. What was I, 14, 15? And, um, and my dad gave Harry Gaz one of the prints. And Harry uh, gave my dad, as a gift for me, a set of, they looked like world book encyclopedias, but they were all about photography. Uh, a collection of like five or six books about photography, and I devoured them. Uh, I've always been a voracious reader, and that's how I learned photography. I'm completely self-taught.
0: Well, you know, that story made me wonder, because you you had to know the play. You had to know where the the laughter was going to be. It made me wonder, can you shoot a band on stage if you've not seen them perform before? Do you need to have the experience of seeing them so you get a feel for their rhythm, for anything that they might do that you would want to shoot?
1: Well, that's a good question um most of the bands i've shot i had not seen before mm-hmm. i may have been familiar with their music It was very rare that i shot a band whose music i was not familiar with that would usually be an opening band like or some slop like uriah heep or sorry well <laughs> but, but you, you know what i'm saying but yeah. but um Knowing the music is what helps
0: uh-huh.
1: and, and knowing music. I took major music in school and I'm well-versed in music. So all I can tell you is the first time I brought my camera to a concert with the idea of actually trying to make some good photographs as opposed to being a fan who, you know, brings right. camera. I don't know how I did it, but it just all made sense to me. On the back cover of my book is that quote, mm-hmm. which I love. Well, hang on, because I'm because this is important. I'm, okay, hang on, I'm gonna get one. Hang on. Where are you, exhilarated and exhausted? <laughs> a, a title, by the way, which I love.
0: I love it too.
1: Yeah. That's well, okay. the only person that, the only person that didn't like it when I came up with it was my fucking publisher.
0: Well, that doesn't surprise me. That does but, not surprise me.
1: But, well, I won them over, so it was okay.
0: Um, well, it, it says so much about what it's like to be uh, a photographer with a touring band. I also love that you didn't put a musician on the cover. It's just this stage with Roger Taylor's drum kit on it.
1: It's not you. a book
0: about the musicians. It's not a tell-all book. It's a book about what it's no. like to be a photographer on the road with musicians.
1: It's what it's like to create an archive uh, of the magnitude uh, of the one I created, which brings all that other stuff into play. So Mm -hmm. here, here's the uh, the quote: Shooting live music is something few photographers do really well. I just and I really mean that. I just discovered one day I was good at it at this because it felt natural to me. You can't teach it, you can't learn it, you just do it. The recipe is as follows, one part photography, one part love of music, one part a love of theater and theatrical lighting, one part hero worship, one part timing and 95 parts in, uh, instinct. And I thought, that's the only way to describe what I do. It's It just came to me naturally. As, as, a resu- as a, a, an amalgam of all those things, the second I got my first camera from my first brother-in-law, I didn't know how to work it, but I, f- I figured it out.
0: It was instinctive.
1: It, it was completely instinctive. And to this day, I've never gone to photo school. So,
0: Oh, wow. Did you take any classes at all?
1: No, I I was accepted to three colleges, but I was already being published when I was in when I was seventeen, sixteen, mm. seventeen. I would already been published. So I, when I graduated high school, I applied to three different colleges, which were NYU, Rochester Institute of Technology, which was basically funded by Kodak. It's more a technical uh, course, the how film is made, and blah blah blah. And then Philadelphia College of Art, I had been spending a lot of time in Philly. I had a lot of friends, and they had a good photography program. And that's where I decided I wanted to go, PCA. I was accepted to that school and the other ones as well. My mom and dad had put down a deposit on the tuition at Philadelphia College of Art. And I literally woke up one morning in that summer between high school and college. And I said, you know... About this, I said, so I went into my mom and dad's bedroom and uh in our family's uh, tradition, especially during football season, lots of bagels, you know, every Sunday, lots of bagels. So I went into my mom and dad's bedroom and and I said, uh, okay, I'll go pick up the dry cleaning. I'll pick up the locks and bagels. I'm not going to go to college. I'll get the dry cleaning. And, you know, I tried to slip a curveball in there and, and my mom said, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> But as it turned out, I had a somewhat crazy uncle who was my mom's uh, uh, brother-in-law, and, but he was very bright, and he took my mom and dad aside, and he said, Neil's got photographic talent, and you should not discount that and you should nurture that and they kind of saw already what was going on Mm -hmm. so um yeah so i didn't go to college i graduated in 70 and then fall of 71 october 15 71 i was on the big bird flying to l.a moved to l.a and here i am
0: your photos, especially the live, the ones that you take on stage, nobody else's look like that.
1: You know what? Thank you. Because I will say that to stick up for myself. My stuff looks different. Yes, it It does. It just does. And I've always known that. Mm. Um, Why? I don't know. But I know that the pictures look different. They have um I'm not gonna say they're more or less artistic. I'm gonna say that they are the work of an individual photographer who I'm not a copycat. No. You know, I don't know how I do it. I
0: mm-hmm. just
1: I instinctively know what light does, and you know, and it all made perfect sense to me. Well I love so thank-, thank you. I call that a real compliment that you said. Well,
0: that. I mean it. Yeah, I love that the way you use space, and, and your photos are so clean. And and then there's something, so many of the photos, and I'm thinking of one in particular, and it's in the epilogue. It's of Jimmy Page. He's on stage. He's looking up, and there's a spotlight down on him, and it's like the glow of heaven shining on him. It's it's oh, heroic. Is
1: it, is it the back cover? Yeah. Well, back? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes,
0: yes. Yeah. It's, it, it's heroic, and that's what so many – of the shots look like to me. These people who are our, our rock heroes come across that way in the photographs.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, heroic and, and to a certain uh, extent romantic, which is, yes. I think, tied in with heroism and hero worship. Um, and I've always felt that. I don't know what came first, chicken or the egg. If I imagine that that's the way I want to shoot it, manage to do it, or saw it was happening in front of me, it was happening right in front of me, and I managed to capture it. I don't know, but I always do at the end of the day when I would sit and look at my stuff, even off proof sheet and look at someone else's, they've got 35 out of 36 frames of someone just singing at the microphone. And I feel that what I've done and I know. I would never say I'm the best or the worst at anything, but I'm the best live music photographer in the world, yeah, I and, I, and I and I I believe that,
0: yeah. and and
1: I will I'll I'll go down the you know the Facebook rabbit hole and this rabbit hole, and if I see a shot someone did that's tremendous, I will write fucking great shot, man. Pardon my French. you know <laughs> I will. I mean, I have no. I'm not one of those people that says. Well, that's great, but I could've done it better. Well, I didn't do it. You did it so i I know a great shot when I see it yes and and I also like to say I've probably taken more bad photographs than most people <laughs> in, in in the world, but that's just a matter of pure volume um, but I feel like it's the last thing I'll say about my performance photos, unless you ask me another question but I think that the challenge for me ultimately is to get that one photo that tells the story of that performance.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And I just came up with that with that rule of thumb a few years ago. So it's one thing to have a shot of Mick Jagger always like this or, he, or whomever. But to, there's just a way of getting the story of that gig
0: Mm-hmm. Whether it's
1: Stevie Nicks shooting Lindsay, the If Looks Could Kill look, <laughs> or if it's Robert with the dove, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that would be the story of that gig. You know? Talk about
0: a happy accident with that. I wonder what yeah. that dove shot would have been like had it landed on Jimmy instead of Robert.
1: Well, I always say that. It wouldn't have turned out well for the dove. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Led Zeppelin came to my life very early.
0: When you were 22, weren't you?
1: I started working through Atlantic. I started working with them in 72, 73. So it would have been 21. And and then I started working for them uh, when I was 20. Let's see. Swan Song Party was 74, so 75. 75. I, I was 24 and a half when I started, or 23 and a half when I started. And I was their only tour photographer ever.
0: Did, did they ever tell you why you were the only one, why they never had anybody before?
1: Well, I, I, I knew why they had never had anybody. Well, let's put it this way. I didn't know why they had never hired an official tour photographer. I mean, they'd been photographed. Mm-hmm. But um, if you know anything about Zeppelin uh, and Peter Grant, their manager, who was a real father figure to me, and he's the guy that held the keys to the kingdom uh you'll know that he made a point especially after they had hit a certain measure of success not in the very very beginning but he kept them off tv yes they didn't they didn't do this show and that show and american bandstand and this and that they did they did some stuff early on in 68 69 but you essentially Could not turn on the tv and see led zeppelin Mm -hmm. like you could see the beatles or or the stones or whomever and that was by design by peter which was brilliant what ended up happening was um in well in 1972 both zeppelin and the stones went on tour and the stones went on a very famous tour and because it was the first big one after the Altamont uh, fiasco, and um, they were getting a hell of a lot of press. It was the Rolling Stones, and they had this star and that star coming back. You know, Andy Warhol and Gay Talese, and and you know, and Mick is married Bianca, and it yeah. was it was like a, a star studded. You know, they would receive the stars. Well, that didn't happen with Zeppelin. They were the opposite. they yeah. were cloistered they were very cloistered or we had a very cloistered touring party, so you couldn't see them on t v if you wanted to see Zeppelin. you had to get yourself a ticket until then they released the movie, which I don't think was a big hit at the time but but generally, you had to get a ticket manage to get a ticket and see them so at the beginning of uh, at the end of seventy four when they started their own label, they had a launch party in LA and a launch party in New York. And my partner, Andy Kent, and I had a retainer deal with Atlantic Records from 72 to 74. But the one main rule is that one of us, Andy or myself, because we shared in all the shoots and the money, uh, one of us had to be available to Atlantic at all times in case mm. they needed it. Was usually, press parties, gold records, celebrations you know, Manhattan transfers playing at the Troubadour, Led yeah. playing along, you know, so, so I'd gotten to know Peter a little bit through Atlantic, but I wasn't in the family, but Danny Goldberg was doing their press. Now I knew Danny when I lived in New York, when I was 17, mm-hmm. Danny was a rock writer and there was a new magazine that had started. I think it was either called changes or rock or no, He wrote for Circus, which the the original uh, uh, name of that magazine was Hullabaloo. Mm. So I knew Danny from New York. Uh, So when I moved out to L.A., and and he he came out with Zeppelin in 73. He was doing their press. And they had the big uh, launch party for Swan Song at the Bel Air Hotel. Uh, They had another one in New York, another venue. But I I remember pulling Danny uh, over, and I said, this was like November 74, October, November 74. And I said, hey, I know you guys are going out on the road, January, if you decide you want a tour photographer, you know me a long time, because I'd love to throw my hat in the ring. Never in my wildest dreams that I realized that about a month and a half later the phone would ring and it was Danny and he said, If you still want to come on the road with us, we want to hire you. Wow. And that's how I got the job. What what had happened internally, and I'm not breaking any confidences because you know Jimmy's talked about this and the stones were getting all the press from seventy-two and then they had the big tour in seventy-five. Led Zeppelin's going on the road in 75, and they're the biggest and baddest ever. And I uh, I have a digital Led Zeppelin book that you can find on the Apple iTunes store. Okay. It, it's called, it came out 12 years ago, way ahead of its time. 300 photos in there, many of which no one's ever seen. We shot uh, uh, some footage of all the Swan Song staff got back together in New York for this. Mm. Danny, Janine Safer, Sam, there was someone else, and me, and th- we had never all been in the same room since the end of Led Zeppelin. Oh
0: my goodness. And,
1: and it was it was really fantastic. And, yeah. and uh, the thing was that um, Zeppelin being cloistered and keeping the mystery uh, was very, very suspicious of the press. It's no secret that Jimmy was apoplectic when the first Rolling Stone interview came out and they panned right. the first album then they panned the second album, mm-hmm. you know, which kids were buying, you know, by the ton. But the guy who broke through that was Cameron because Cameron had interviewed Jimmy in 73 for an LA Times story and Cameron was 15
0: well, you guys met in, what, 72 when he was 15? So 15, was, 16, somewhere around in there? I
1: think, yeah. I remember I was given an article the camera had written in the San Diego door right after I moved. It must have been beginning of 72. And uh, my girlfriend at the time was a, a rock and roll PR girl. She said, read this article. It was, I don't remember who it was about but i said yeah it's pretty good she said the kid who wrote it is 14 and a half <laughs> so um anyway i you know w- we met each other and um
0: at a humble was, Pie well, concert
1: at a humble, where yeah. i apparently i brushed him off because i was working
0: <laughs> what you wrote and, about you know, yeah
1: uh, yeah he had kind of broken through so when 75 came around zeppelin said you know we're not getting any fucking press cuz fucking Mick Jagger. It wasn't a jealousy, but
0: probably frustration,
1: but it was, you know, we're led Zeppelin. We're not,
0: we're not led
1: cowpoke. (laughs) And, um, so the decision was made that they would open up to some press. Cameron got the Rolling Stone piece and they had some other press on the road, but they would need a photographer to be able to service magazines for all these stories that were coming out and to document they never had anyone like that Mm -hmm. to document the tour so Danny told me I was hired now I would not have been hired if Peter Grant and Jimmy Page hadn't signed off on it Jimmy's band I don't care what anybody says look I love Peter Grant he trusted me he took me under his wing as did Jimmy and um, but he, Peter knew that being such a large guy, he was very imposing and could get his way just by kind of getting in someone's face and yeah. with that cockney accent. And you know, if you fucked up, Peter would spank you in a in a way appropriate for you. And I got spanked a couple of times. They were the biggest and best. And I knew that going in. However, there's no instruction booklet for a kid going on the road with any band, much less the biggest. And I'm sorry. Zeppelin and Stones both went on the road in 75. And I've said it before, and I will say it again. Led Zeppelin ate the Rolling Stones for lunch <laughs> that year. I will and you, you can print that banner headline.
0: Are you um, afraid of Peter Grant?
1: No, 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 no. I was afraid John Bonham when he was drunk.
0: Yeah, you tell the story or two. <laughs> that- you know, it's fine
1: because that story will get you a twenty million dollar lawsuit victory. Now, Ooh. when I, I got depensed on the yeah. plane, yeah, yeah, um, and that's another good line I have. Where um, you know Bonzo was the nicest. Country gentleman in the world. But once he started drinking, bull on a china shop, and you literally would want to cross the street uh, and, okay. and hide if you saw him coming towards you uh, if he was drunk. But he could be the nicest, nicest, nicest guy. Jekyll and Hyde. And yeah. uh, uh, the, the last night, um, and, uh, for the benefit of your viewers, I, w- I will... Tell the story in a nutshell, but uh, in '75, uh, Robert got sick in the middle of the Chicago gigs, so they had to postpone one of the four Chicago gigs. They added, they tacked it on to the end of that leg of the tour, and it was a St. Louis show. So the last show of that leg, we flew from uh, uh, Newark from the private terminal of Newark uh, in the Starship. To St. Louis, did the show. I hadn't slept at the month for many reasons, if you know. What I mean. mostly stress, punctuated by copious amounts of cocaine. But in between, I was always careful when I was working to keep it at a bare minimum. But my thing is, and I've struggled with drug addiction in my life, as a lot of us have. Sure. And not would, I'm, I'm cool now, but I'm. It was the, the boring moments, the in-between gigs, the two days off, you know, till I was 50, you know. Anyway, after the gig, all I want to do is go to sleep. We get in the limos. We do the runner to the airport. I take a blue volume in the limo. I'm walking up the stairs of the airplane. I take a second blue volume. That's 20 milligrams. I get up into the plane. I put my bag down and I go to the bar to get uh, a Coke and a little something to eat. And I take a third.
0: Holy shit. flew.
1: value. <laughs> so, but I'm amped from, you know, just work. Yeah. But I was going to get some sleep. So I go back to my seat and I'm starting to get a little woozy, 30 milligrams of value coursing through my brain. And veins, and all of a sudden, John Bonham walks up to me and says, "Let's see your knob." The knob is British slang for. Oh peace.
0: yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> what <do you> <laughs> I said, "Let's see your fucking knob," and he sicked three of the off-duty cops on me. Now that wasn't a fight I was going to win, anyway. Yeah. But. You know, by maze, All I know is, about thirty seconds later, I am flat out on the floor of the starship, stark fucking naked, and I look up to see a slightly bemused Jimmy Page <laughs> looking at me, clearly not impressed <laughs> with what he was looking at.
0: Oh my god, I'm laughing. Double, that triple
1: to... entendre. Oh
0: you know? Jesus, I'm laughing, but it had to have been terrifying.
1: It wasn't. No, it wasn't terrifying. It was embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, because this is, you know, I don't know about uh, females, but, you know, men, boys who grew up in in the British school system, whether it's public or Catholic or private, it's different, you know. They fighting, you know, underage drinking if I it's a rite of passage you know okay you know ripping a kid's clothes off a, I mean I, I I was mortified at the time I was embarrassed mm-hmm. but I realized later on that meant that I was in the club
0: okay that's what
1: that's what it meant
0: so were things different afterward with you and Bonzo
1: I think in my whole life, I've probably said 200 words to Bonzo. Really? I, well, when I had to. Yeah. You know, well, he had his own set of friends. You know, Jimmy. I mean, I naturally gravitated towards Robert.
0: hmm
1: And Jonesy. You know, the most, I mean, Robert was just a big hippie. Mm. You know, so, um, but they all, I got to say, they all accepted me with open arms. I still worked for Jimmy after Zeppelin. Um uh, he did the firm, and I yeah. worked with him on the firm, and then Coverdale the Page I worked mm-hmm. on. I actually uh, went on the road with them and directed their electronic press kit. Uh, and then the outrider stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I I was Jimmy's guy for a long time. Then they did the 40th Atlantic anniversary show at the Garden and uh, 40th anniversary of Atlantic Records. But during the days of Zeppelin, there's a lot to subconsciously manage on the road with a band like that, especially with those egos.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I don't mean uh, in a negative way, but you know Fleetwood Mac, same way, very five, very, very, very opinionated people, and same with Zeppelin four very 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 opinionated people plus peter grant plus richard cole
0: yeah
1: and and you know richard boy richard came through for me one night big time um we played a gig in um greensboro north carolina i don't remember if it was 75 or 77 but i do remember we would have six limos at each gig. One limo for each band member, or seven. One for each band member, one for Peter and Tommy Hewlett or whoever the promoter was. And then one for the uh, crew, the traveling crew, the part of the crew that traveled with the band, which was me, Janine, the PR girl, someone from Swan Song, my dear friend Danny Marcus, who was the Atlantic Records uh Talent coordinator, administrators. So he was the guy with the Amex card. And okay. um, apparently there had been a riot outside the loading dock. And uh, we would have to, you know what a runner is? Have no. you ever heard that term?
0: No. Uh,
1: band plays the set. Uh, crowd yells for an encore. And you know they're going to come out for an encore sure. or two. And during those encores, the whole touring party gets in the limos, in the rear limos, so that when the show's over, when when a whole lot of love's over, four band members put on their robes, walk to the front of the line of limos, get in their limo, loading loading dock door goes open, whether it's the Forum or the Garden or Chicago Stadium or wherever, Mm -hmm. and then police escort to the uh, airfield. And as Danny Marcus used to say, a lot of times – the crowd would still be yelling for more and we'd be on the plane ordering lobster.
0: But in <laughs>
1: Greensboro, there was a semi-riot and the limo drivers were afraid to actually drive through the crowd. They were petrified. And Peter went, went ballistic. He said, I'll, I will buy these fucking limos off you. Peter always had a lot of cash on them, hmm. for whatever reason. And at the end of the day, he, he threw the limo drivers against the wall. Uh, the band finished. A lot of love. There were two limos left. Peter got behind the wheel of the first one. Richard got behind the wheel of the second one. And I think I tell this story in the book. But you no. But the floating dock door opens, and Richard... And I got my camera bag and he throws me in the back and I'm laying face down over the laps of four of the most stunningly beautiful women I've <laughs> ever seen in my life. You know, and I'm 20 something and I'm like, oh, my God, this is great. But I couldn't see where, I couldn't see where we were going. They took off. They outran the police escort. Wow. In two, in two limos. So six limos worth of people out know how many were my limo. must have been 20. Hmm. I mean there were four girls plus me over them, plus I think there was a jump seat, plus people were squeezing the front. And Peter and Richard are, are driving, who are used to driving on the other side of the road. Yes. As well. So uh but when we got to the, the uh the airfield, Peter did a victory lap around <laughs> the plane, and um and uh, I got out of the limo that Oh, and when Richard had pushed me into the limo, my bag flipped over and all these lenses and rolls of film started rolling down the concrete ramp. And he helped me pick up every single roll of film, every lens, cursing me, <laughs> words I've never heard to this day again.
0: Oh,
1: but he had my it. back. Yeah. He had my back. So, you know, th- I, I miss Richard a lot. Yeah. He was, So good guy, but you know, they're, they were, they were a bunch. Anyway, I know you wanted to ask
0: me about Keysar. Yes. When you think of Keysar, you think of Robert with the Newcastle and the dove. When I think of Keysar, and honestly, Neil, I don't remember when I first saw that picture of Jimmy. And it's the one of
1: Jimmy with his arms Yes. Out
0: like that. Yeah. I mean, you were talking earlier about wanting to tell a story when you take pictures. Well, I did. I took the, that. You know, yeah, I took that you know. picture, and that was my own story that came out because that photo wow. spoke to me in such an, an incredible way. I mean, I had a visceral reaction wow. to it.
1: No and one's it, ever commented on that photo before. Other that's
0: either. interesting. It is my. Now, I love
1: it, but you know.
0: Well, I wanted. I wondered, you know, because the the Robert Plant one kind of overshadows a lot of the other shots right. from that that uh, concert. What do you remember about that particular shot of Jimmy?
1: Uh, I remember I was on Jonesy's side of the stage.
0: Mm.
1: Um, that's about all I can tell you. Yeah. because It's funny, half the show I didn't get to shoot because, oh, my God, it was. I don't know how much you know about Bill Graham.
0: I know he was a tough cookie.
1: He was hes tough cookie. He promoted everything uh, out of San Francisco. and He yeah. was a promoter. And he had a very, very, very bad temper. Great guy, as I found out later in later years. But had a really bad temper. And for some reason, when we showed up, he didn't want me on the stage. And Peter and Bill got into it about me. Wow. For, I don't think I got on stage to Moby Dick. Until, like, half the show is over.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: So, but I made the most of it. You, know,
0: you certainly did. well I, I
1: wasn't working for them. I was working for Atlantic in 73. Yeah. And, but, you know, Peter worked it out. But Bill, I've been the, the recipient of Bill's rap twice when he was alive. And neither was fun. But One of the big differences is that it was daylight,
0: getting, mm-hmm.
1: which was unusual. Yeah. So it's so you're not, uh, you're not thinking about the lighting and the silhouettes, right? And the highlights and the shadows. It's a different world. Yeah. And it wasn't. It wasn't afternoon going into dusk going into nighttime like queen did in 86 mm-hmm. it was a daylight show so that was different and uh they everyone knows the story about the the two cages of
0: yes birds
1: you know and then they were released during stairway and that one bird did a slow burn around the crowd san francisco which at that time was you know crazy right. and and he stuck his hand out. The bird landed on his hand. But Robert's a farm guy. You know, he grew up on a farm. So he's used to animals and all that. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's another guy that shot a similar picture from further back, and it's in color, who's been trying to live off the famous Robert Plant dove shot.
0: Oh, my And, and you can
1: look it up, but mine's better.
0: <laughs> of course it is. It is.
1: I just, you know what? Happy accent. Right. Happened to have the right focal length lens. Happened to have film with the camera. Happened to see the bird land. Happened to have the camera right here. Boom. Happy accident.
0: Well, that's an iconic shot. And it's, you know, that's the one everybody thinks of with Keysar. But again, the one of Jimmy just speaks to me. It it crystallizes oh, so much of what I love about him, what I love about that band, it that that duality, that light and dark aspect yeah, of them, yeah. I think is captured in that shot. So well,
1: thank you. But when you you just said the phrase, it spoke to you. Yeah. It speaks to you. And, and when someone says that, I know I did my job.
0: Well, you certainly
1: did. Pictures I love speak to me. My favorite Led Zeppelin shot. Is not Jimmy drinking the Jack Daniels?
0: Speaking of that Jimmy Page Jack Daniel shot,
1: he was on my left. I was here. I had a Nikon with a twenty-four mil on my lap, and I was talking to someone over here. But I knew Jimmy was over there, and I was talking, probably talking to some girl knowing me. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and out of the corner of my eye, I see this bottle start to come up, and I literally did this. Forgot about
0: it. yeah,
1: one frame. Forgot about it. it. Became the poster child photo for seventies excess. Mm-hmm. Rock and roll.
0: Well, I love that um, Jack Daniels didn't want to use that for publicity for them because he wasn't drinking responsibly.
1: No, no, they wouldn't even buy a. We wanted to sell a photo for the Jack Daniels to the corporate office. What mm-hmm. better photo? Not drinking responsibly. Cut to 25 years later, they're doing a documentary about uh, Jack Daniels and rock and roll. And they begged me for photos.
0: <laughs> well, there you go.
1: You know, so, but, uh you know, the thing about Keysar was the afternoon gig and the doves and the San Francisco crowd and the hippies. And Robert was in his element because yeah. Robert's an old hippie. And it was, to him, it was, Summer of love all over again. Mm-hmm. that's what the the white. I always thought the dogs they were pigeons <laughs> okay. It was just if you look at the crowd shots from Keys I'm telling you every third person's a dope dealer without question.
0: Oh wow. <laughs> of talking about Zeppelin. There's an overlap, yeah. an overlap with almost famous. Is I want to make sure we can talk about that. And they, oh yes, yeah. one of the things that I saw it when it came out in the theater, and and I was I was with my mother, and I remember just being so excited because I got all the Zeppelin references and. I was, yeah, I yeah, was yeah. just so excited. Oh, there's that, a bunch
1: of Easter eggs in there. Yeah, yes. Yes. So let's talk it.
0: about some of that, but I just rewatched there. the movie last night. I've seen that movie so many times, but I rewatched it last night for the umpteenth time. And tell me the backstory of that film. Cause I know that it had in the beginning, it had a different title. It was a different story than what it wound up being. Yeah. So how did, how did you get from that initial, I guess, more fictionalized version To what became really autobiographical.
1: Yeah, Yeah. well, um, I have a copy of the original
0: Do you? A few months after Neil read the original script, Cameron gave him the shooting script. The story had changed, and the title was now Almost Famous.
1: But a lot of what's in Almost Famous, a lot, is lifted directly from... His and my experiences on the road with a few bands, primarily the Allman Brothers,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which was the first big band that he and I toured with. But everyone thinks that Stillwater is based on Zeppelin, mm. but it's not. It's Stillwater it is a, it's an amalgam. It's 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 the band that has the two creative forces that sometimes there is friction between them. Yeah. Plant and Page, Keith and Mick, but um, it's more the Eagles, actually. Think I never would have guessed Lee. that. Yeah, but there's elements of all those bands. So it's it's specifically not about Led Zeppelin, but people think that it is because of us. Um, I know that... Uh, Cameron called me up, and he had, he was just coming off of Jerry Maguire, which was a humongous hit.
0: Oh god! Yeah. And
1: and he said two things. He said, "This is our story. This is our story. Literally his and mine." Mm-hmm. And I, you know, if you can deal with being in one place for three months, because Cameron knows I'm used to traveling around all the time, right? It, you know, we can write a letter to the union. Because you have to be in the union, yeah. and uh, I think we can get you in. So I said, "I'm doing it." So um, he, he and maybe the producer—no, maybe it was just him—wrote a letter to Local 600 of cinematography, cinematography
0: guild. Yeah, and it
1: landed right on our friend Kim Gottlieb's desk, who was the second in command. Kim, we knew for years, had been a rock writer. She was married to this guy Jeff Walker who was a writer, then was PR for Island. And Kim was like, yep. Yeah. So we <laughs> joined Dance. the union.
0: <laughs> yeah. And
1: we started shooting this movie. And it was surreal. It was life imitating art, imitating life. And it was like being on a rock tour. Wow. Exactly like being on a rock tour for three months. Mind you, the only two people on that set who had ever met Lester Banks were me and Cameron. You know, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff was exactly as it happened in real life. Um, uh, When uh, the girl that plays the sister, Zoe Deschanel, um, there's that scene where she leaves William, the kid, the records. Right. It says listen to Tommy with a candle. Yes. And those records were all from Cameron's personal collection.
0: Oh my God. That's amazing.
1: And the guys are playing the poker game and they have the the, the oh, one yeah. card on there. That's Eagles poker. That came from the Eagles. And the day we shot that, Cameron came running over me and said, Can you can you call uh, I had to call Larry Salters, who was the uh, Eagles PR guy to and we got Glenn on the phone because Cameron wanted to make sure that every single nuance was perfect. The tape recorder the kid uses was Cameron's tape recorder.
0: Oh my God. You,
1: you could see that tape recorder in shots that I have of Cameron interviewing Clapton and Jeff Beck and Bert That's Collins.
0: amazing.
1: The bag that the when the kid the bag flips over and all the shit falls out yeah. on the Fifth yeah. Avenue. That's Cameron's actual bag. Oh that you know, we used to be on the road for Rolling Stone. We'd have to share one room because Rolling Stone wasn't going to pay for two rooms. Mm-hmm. They still won't. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, you, you know, we used to do stuff that kids would do, like go through the Yellow Pages and make phony phone calls oh, to sure. people. And, but Cameron would then pack the Yellow Pages in his suitcase and I'd say, why the fuck are you taking you know, the Albuquerque yellow page is home. And he said to me, cause I, I don't know if I'll ever be back
0: here. Oh, sentimental.
1: So all that was real. And, um, certainly there's fictionalized stuff. Um, yeah. You know, you know, we got slammed a little bit because it's a bit of a, it's not a sanitized version but it doesn't dwell on the drug scene and the mm-hmm. sex scene really. Mm-hmm. scene meaning the vibe. Yeah. And, um, but so much of it is real. Um, the, the, the scenes at the Hyatt, the riot house, it was like that, it was crowded. And the, the last night we shot at the riot house was the last time it said, Continental Hyatt house outside. And the oh, next man. day, they closed. They closed for um, for uh, renovations. It became a different hotel. And Nancy, who was Cameron's wife at the time, mm-hmm. Nancy Wilson, mm-hmm. took the the last picture of being Cameron in front of the Riot House after we wrapped it like five years. Wow. And I treasure that photo.
0: I bet you do.
1: It was my life. You know, yeah. I'm just not a character in the movie. Almost famous is about music, the love of music. The importance of family and what it means to be a fan that's what those are the three pillars and um there's a speech that throws a ball gives at the end where she's talking to billy right before he goes out to san diego where i say with russell Hammond, where she said, and this always got to me where she says to him do you have any idea what a little piece of music that no one cares about, can mean to someone like me or my friends. And that says it all.
0: Yeah.
1: It's about a fan. As I like to say, if Pete Townsend was walking on my balcony, I'd be cutting this thing off so fast, it would make your head spin. (laughs) But that's me, you know? The other thing I want to say about um, Almost Famous, uh, Cameron won an Oscar for original screenplay and Mm -hmm. deserved it. Yes. Um, at the, the night of those Oscars, uh, so it must have been 2000 because we shot in 1999 and the movie was released in 2000. Uh, so um, he had won the Oscar, and I was on a shoot in Miami Beach or Miami shooting Dave Justice, who used to play on the Atlanta Braves. I do; also, mm. I've done a lot of sports too. Yes. I get back to my room and I turn on the Oscars. And I know that he's up for an Oscar. And all of a sudden, the winner is Cameron Crowe. Like, what? And I see him walk up to, to the podium. And he's clearly nervous at the mic. And the only people he could re- he blanked out, the only people he could remember to thank were, were his mom and me.
0: Oh. And when I got
1: back to L.A., these are the days of answering machines, 50-some-odd.
0: Messages from people all over the
1: world. Yeah. I heard your name on the Oscars, you know. But um, that's wonderful. You know, it's a
0: completely
1: original screenplay, and there's a certain young lady that I know you've spoken to named Pamela Debar, who to this day has tried to co-opt every all the work that Cameron put into that movie, saying that it. He stole an idea from her and it is patently untrue and why she keeps saying this. I don't know. There are different generations. I know Cameron read her book. I haven't read her book, but last I heard she didn't write for Rolling Stone, but she didn't have the family camera. She didn't have the life that he had or we had. And, um, I like Pamela as a person, but she's got a can with the whole Almost Famous is stolen from Michael. It ain't true. It is not true. It never was true. It never will be true. And I'm here to stick up for my guy. And uh, because he deserves it. So with all due respect to Pam and, and her husband, Michael, it ain't true. But Almost Famous is... It's as everyone thinks there's this existential thing where people, everyone thinks they're the star of the, life, of the movie of their own life. But Almost Famous, between Almost Famous and Spinal Tap, <laughs> the, the, the story of my life Spinal Tap makes me laugh. Almost Famous makes me laugh and cry.
0: Yeah.
1: Because it's, you know, it's so real, and I was there for all of it. So it's it's pretty wild. And um, one thing you'll like is that one of the concert scenes, I think it was at the Palladium, uh, we did one take of the wide shots of Stillwater on the band, and all the kids in the front were doing this, mm-hmm. like Ozzy. Yeah. So Cameron had to go up between takes and tell everyone, we love you, the enthusiasm is off the chart, but this wasn't invented. In <laughs> 1973. Well, I'm going to surprise you with something. The t-shirt scene. Well, first of all, I worked for days and days trying to get the right shot where Billy was in focus and the other band members were not in focus. Mm-hmm. Two days before we were supposed to shoot, I, Cameron came to me and said, I got it. He said, I got I said, what? He said, bad company, burning sky. He knew that I'd know what that cover was. So for my 50th birthday, my friend Randy Woodside, hi, Randy, who was the gaffer, had stolen the T-shirt off the set at the end of the shoot day. Now, they always have two or three spares in case one gets damaged. That is the T-shirt
0: from the team.
1: And there's a... woody woody gave it to he had stolen it for years to give it to me for my 50th birthday one of my closest friends there's a lipstick stain here don't know where that came from there's a mustard stain on the back from dodger stadium
0: oh, but man,
1: i'm not big on memorabilia but i had to that is the shirt baby wow how about that
0: i love it uh, There is so much humor. I was laughing out loud when I was reading the book. Thank you. And I, have, you. I've, I wrote down so many quotes. That your writing you. is really, from one writer to another, you're a hell of oh, a well, good writer. You know? and,
1: and you know what? That, I appreciate more than anything. I mean, I can't tell you, because I've had writers. I mean, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh that, that warms the cockles of my heart. I mean, I know some of the pictures are great. I know, you know, the pictures are the pictures. But I wanted the book to be me.
0: Your personality and comes out. It's not just the stories. It's the writing and the humor that comes through and the, the voice. It's it's called voice. You have an incredible voice as a writer.
1: Well, thank you. Well, thank you. I, you know, it's I just... Like my my friend Chet, who's a big fan of mine, says it's a fucking movie, bro. Yeah. It's a movie. Now I, you know now. And a you're movie has one. To be, Well, we're making a documentary. A Movie has to, you know. I know a lot about movies from working on all the cameras, but but I'm proud. I'm proud of the writing. When someone says, because people don't, you know, they look at the pictures and they never really. They'll tell you they read the book, but oh yeah, I read the first page. I didn't really read much else. And I tell them. It'll take an hour, but you will get it. Mm -hmm. My favorite line is, "When the when the when the show's over, get out of the roadie's way. It's not worth getting impaled by a forklift just because you want to impress some girl from Memphis who you'll never see again." And I speak from experience. I'm so glad you liked the book because I loved
0: the book. I did.
1: It's it's just me. So yeah. Um, yeah, so we're turning it into a documentary. I told you that. It's probably a year away. We've been gathering a bunch of... Obviously, there's not a lot of footage from the 70s of me working. I mean, I've got the odd shots of me in this one and me in that one. But, um, you know, we've found enough footage to be able to help tell the story in real time without me having to be on camera. I mean, there's a lot of audio and, um, um, but it's really exciting. Good. No one can do it. No one can or has done anything like this because it's the deep dive down into the rock tour world without going into the sordid aspects of it. It's like, you know, the stress, the deadlines. I mean, my life has been a series of deadlines. Being on a rock it's not the 24-7 drug and sex orgy that people think it is. It's the exact opposite. It's stressful. It's... There's... You have no sleep. The deadlines... Whether they're film deadlines, print deadlines, deadlines, because George Michael wants to go to fucking India.
0: And he had to get the little curl straight before he could do the oh my God. shoot. I
1: watched, I watched George Michael by the clock, 33 minutes, in his suite in Philly. I did the last Wham tour. It was seven, yeah. seven gigs. Third gig was in Philly. I wanted to quit. All he did was fuck with the little curl. He couldn't get it right. And he was getting really funny. Fun. Mm-hmm. Ah! Yeah. And um And look, that's part of the deal. Everyone says, God, he must have had so much fun with Led Zeppelin, all the drugs and babes and everything. And what I tell them is, I had much more fun with the REO wagon. <laughs> Which I did. I, know years, <laughs> I don't care. I'm not even going well, there.
0: Well, you know,
1: and, and <laughs> Queen. I mean, I did six tours of Queen, and Brian's a very close friend of mine. And boy, those days were.
0: This was magical. Well, I, hope, I, hope, I, mean, I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I had a blast.